we're continuing our study of Hebrews. We're in chapter 2 this morning. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. And yeah, I think we'll, we'll finish Hebrews 2 this morning. And really bring to a conclusion the author of Hebrews' focus on uh, particularly the comparison to the angels and the prophets. Uh, that is Christ's role as a messenger, and so um, and and his his being the greatest of the messengers, greater than the prophets, the the ideal prophet, greater than the angels. And so, uh, let me pray for us, and we'll get started in Hebrews two, verse fourteen. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the author of Hebrews. Uh, we thank you for this work that is uh, is so instructive to us and such an encouragement to us. Uh, we pray that we would understand it rightly, uh, and in so doing, your spirit would work in us to make us more like Christ, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so just kind of remembering the, how things are laid out here, uh, in verses 1 through 4, we, particularly 1 through 3, get this, uh, this uh, really just amazing start to the book where he lays out his project uh, where Christ is at the center of what he is going to argue. Uh, he's uh, all that we need, is, is how we might put it. Uh, and he's going to, throughout the rest of the book, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he's going to say things like, you, you think you needed the prophets? Uh, Christ is greater. You think you need the angels? Christ is greater. Uh, you think you need Moses? Christ is greater, etc., etc. The covenant in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, we have a greater covenant than that. The priesthood, we have a greater high priest. Uh, everything that you might want to go back to in the Old Testament, Christ is greater because all of them served him. They all pointed to him. And so he's been uh, making this argument. And here, if we look back up just a few verses above where we're going to start reading, uh, verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their uh, salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And so he's going to come back to this idea. He's quoted some Old Testament passages uh, to, to undergird the argument he's making. Uh, I will tell of your name to my brothers. That's in the voice of Christ from the Old Testament. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Uh, again, in, uh, in the, the third quote there, Behold, I and the children God has given me. And so he's going to key off of that quote here as we begin in 14. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might, be, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Uh, he's going to pick up in the next verses and move into uh, Moses. But, uh, but here, he's finishing up the argument with respect to angels. 
Uh, and his point, if we were to back out on these verses, 14 through the end of the chapter, his central point is right there in uh, verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Uh, and so Christ took on flesh. He became fully human in order to save humans. He, he didn't come to save angels. If he'd come to save angels, he would have taken on an angelic identity, right? An angelic existence. But he doesn't come to save angels. He comes to save us. And we know that he comes to save us because he took on humanity. Look at the, uh, the necessity of verse 17. Therefore, right, he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be make, made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Uh, a high priest has to, uh, to represent those who are like him. Uh, and so the high priest in Israel uh, was uh, part of the Aaronic Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood, uh, and represented before God the people of God, the people of Israel, and all those who were joined to them by faith in the Old Testament. Well, in the same way, on a cosmic scale, Christ, in order to be our high priest, can't be anything other than human. He must be fully man in order to represent us as a great high priest. And as a high priest, he does uh, the, the images begin to, to overlap one another significantly, right? Because we're going to find out as we keep reading in Hebrews. He, as the high priest, he is both the one who makes the offering and he is the offering itself, right? He, he brings himself as an offering. And so, uh, so let's take a look, uh, beginning again there in 14. So look at the logic. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is with one another. Since we have this in common, this is what unites us, is our humanity, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The, the verb here, partook, implies he wasn't human, and then he was. He, he took this upon himself. He, he was not partaking of humanity, and then he did partake of humanity. That, or you, you could say so that, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Remember one of the things I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, the last time we, we met to discuss Hebrews, is that running through all of the, the imagery, all of the language of the author of Hebrews is the Exodus account. And we see that here as well. I think sometimes, we, particularly if you've been a Christian for very long or if you've made uh, the study of God's Word uh, something you devote a lot of time to, you become familiar with a lot of the language that Scripture uses. And slavery is language that Scripture uses quite frequently. Paul's very fond of the image of slavery to describe our, uh, our relationship to sin prior to faith in Christ and the nature of what's happened to us because of Christ, being delivered from that slavery. But in all cases, when slavery is used as an image in salvation, it's actually borrowing, it's looking back to, it's assuming that you know the story of the Exodus, which was a deliverance of the people of God from slavery in Egypt. 
And so the author of Hebrews is doing this here. Uh, Christ partook of humanity so that he could die as a human being and therefore destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The effect of Christ defeating death and the devil was that we are delivered who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. We were slaves to sin, to use Paul's language. We've been delivered from slavery to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. All of this serves, again, the point in verse 16. It's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So I'm going to pause there uh, before I go on. Questions, observations? Uh, Hebrews is a strong candidate. Uh, probably the only other one would be um, one of the Gospels. Matthew or Mark, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, of course, those two are, are two of the three synoptic Gospels. They've got a lot of information, a lot of material in common, um, together with Luke. Uh, but Matthew is, is very intentionally addressing himself to the Jewish community with the gospel. Um, and so it would make sense that you would see that in Matthew. Um, and I'd, it's there, of course, you, you know better than I uh, that it's there in Mark as well. But apart from those two gospels in the book of Hebrews, I can't think of one. Uh, maybe Galatians uses that imagery. Um, but, but in Hebrews, it's pervasive. The, the whole work is shot through with uh, this image of the exodus and the giving of the law and the, the resulting priesthood and, uh, and tabernacle worship. So, Other questions? Yes, David. Yeah, that's, that's one of the, the things that commentators really wrestle with in this passage. What does it mean that the, uh, the, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil? How does the devil have the power of death? Well, we, we want to start by certainly acknowledging uh, that it's derivative, right? That it, it's a, uh, whatever power Satan has, uh, it's not inherent to him, but is something uh, delegated or derived from a greater authority, which is God, right? Uh, when you think about death, that where we have to begin is that death, on the one hand, it came into the world through Adam's disobedience, Paul, Romans, right, chapter 5, uh, and the serpent was there and is the one who deceived, and so we could say uh, in an instrumental sense that the serpent, Satan, is the one through whom, by whom, death came into the world. Uh, but what was death in Genesis 1 through 3? It was first and foremost God's 
judgment against sin. Uh, there's almost a sense in which, well, I don't know if I want to say it that way. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to say it that way. So, but, but death is the threat for disobedience, and then they disobeyed, and therefore death was imposed. And like we talked about this morning in the sermon, uh, or at least you can get there logically from what I said, uh, death, for us, though, there's a very existential element to that, right? Death. Um, we, we always need to remember, as we, we study Scripture and we come across the concepts of life and death, we always need to remember that, that true life, eternal life, is always sourced, always extended in relationship with God. It is relationship with God. To be in right relationship with God is to have life. Uh, to be uh, in rebellion against God and therefore not have the relationship with God is death. Uh, that's the judgment against sin. And so we don't deny that the devil has this power or had this power, but we do deny that he, uh, that he has this power inherently. It's a derived power. And how did he gain the power? I, I think probably here in these verses in Hebrews, it's best not to think of, uh, of the power of death and Satan holding the power of death in the way that we might think of someone who has, um, hmm. it's a tool that Satan uses. And if, if we don't know Christ, then Satan's tool is powerful. Uh, the threat of death apart from Christ is a serious threat. Uh, death is a powerful thing and is itself eternal for those who are not in Christ. Uh, and so Christ has come, and in defeating death, he's demonstrated that, that death no longer even exists for us who are in Christ as a, an existential threat. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, that's life. Nothing can separate us from the life that is ours in God. Uh, we have that life now if we're trusting in him, and it's not interrupted when we experience our physical death. Uh, the life that is ours in God, in fact, is only realized fully at death. Our physical death results in our entering into uh, the fullest experience of life in God that we're, we can experience until the resurrection. And so uh, death, again, to borrow the language that we've, we've used in the last couple of weeks, death, uh, it, it no longer has a victory. Uh, there's no sting in death. As Christians, we should not fear death. I know that that's a... That's, you, we can't say that lightly, can we? Um, if we pretend that that's an easy, whimsical idea that we don't have to fear death anymore, we're not being honest. Uh, death is still a bad thing. We don't see death as a blessing per se, uh, but even as a bad thing, uh, it's, it is now in the service of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right.
It's no longer Satan's tool for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It serves God. So, Okay. Other questions before we pick back up where we left off here? Notice that uh, it, it would be easy to assume that because Christ took on human flesh, became a human in order to save humanity, that all human beings are thus to be saved, right? If a human being did these things, accomplished these things, removed these things, and gave us these things, removed uh, sin and guilt and the stain and the judgment and the wrath of God uh, so that we are now in right relationship with God, and he had to become human in order to do this, and he accomplished it as a human, then all humanity must be saved, right? Uh, but the author of Hebrews won't let us make that mistake. Uh, he says in verse 16, it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And in that phrase, the offspring of Abraham, salvation is limited. That's uh, just a fact. Uh, you, you might be wrestling with the five points of Calvinism and uh, the doctrine of predestination and uh, you might even know about tulip and the L in tulip, limited atonement, that Christ didn't die on the cross for everybody. Uh, and you may be wrestling with these things, and you may not be a fan of what you are hearing, uh, but there is no question that Scripture limits salvation. Salvation is not universal. There are people who have lived who will spend an eternity under the wrath of God, and there are people who have lived that will spend an eternity in perfect fellowship with God. How do, do we, how does Scripture, and therefore we, speak of these two groups of people in the history of humanity? And one of the ways that Scripture speaks of them is here, the offspring of Abraham. Uh, so again, we come back to the question we've asked before, why do we care whether or not we are the offspring of Abraham. Is the author of Hebrews only writing to Jews here? Is that what he means by the offspring of Abraham? Or does he mean something truer? Is he talking about the spiritual offspring of Abraham, all of those who are in Christ? And if that's who the, the true spiritual offspring of Abraham are, then how did it get that way? Why are we talking about the offspring of Abraham? Right? Let's go back to Genesis. Genesis, uh, we're going to start in 12. Matt, I'll be trying to answer for a question. Of course. So, obviously, like, we, we understand that phrase in all its fullness because we also have the, the book of Romans. Right? So, I can't remember the, the composition order. Would the readers of this have had also the book of Romans, the original? <coughs> Uh, yes, I believe they would have. I'd have to go back and double check, but Hebrews is written, we think, shortly before. It's difficult to answer. I think the answer is yes, but if you date the books of the New Testament uh, as best we can, because they, they don't have dates on them, uh, if you date them, they end up clustering in the 60s, which is when we believe the book of Hebrews was written, and I can't remember off the top of my head when the book of Romans is written. Uh, but I believe they have Romans already, or at least could potentially have Romans. So, yeah. Uh, 
In fact, I'm, I'm almost certain they do. I'd have to go back and double check. But if our dating is right, yeah, I, I'm not, not going to do that. Um, look at uh, Genesis 12, verse 1, very famous passage. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right? So there's a blessing that comes to Abraham, and that blessing is going to come through Abraham to all the families of the earth, right? If you look at 15, Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, or Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. There's a key word, offspring. Uh, some older translations, English translations, seed here. It's the same uh, word translated different ways, seed or offspring. Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Uh, and so... Uh, and then you, you finish up with the, the command uh, to circumcise in Genesis 17. These three passages together being the Abrahamic covenant. But we see that the promise made to Abraham, the covenant made with Abraham, uh, is a covenant. And, and what we would have read if we'd gone to Genesis 17 uh, is that it is a covenant forever. Right? The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant forever. And so the two questions that, uh, that we wrestle with, particularly in conversation with our Baptist brothers and sisters, is, is the Abrahamic covenant still in effect? And who belongs to it? And some will answer that it's not, though I don't understand how we're supposed to read the New Testament uh, and, and care if the Abrahamic covenant's still in effect, if we don't belong to it. Some say it's still in effect, but it's only for the Jews. The Abrahamic covenant's not in effect for the Gentiles. But that fails to account for Paul's strong determination. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, you'll remember, strong determination to say to the Gentiles, you who believe are offspring of Abraham. Again, if you're a Gentile at the time, why do you care? Why do you care that Paul says this? Go to Romans 9, uh, which is, uh, is where we, we turn so often in the discussion of predestination. But here, in particular, I want to look at, at something different near the beginning of the chapter. Paul, in 1 through 8, has been laying out his gospel. He's been laying it out for a largely Gentile audience, and he anticipates an objection. Uh, he anticipates his Gentile audience saying to him, this all sounds fine and well, Paul, but God made promises to the Jews. They rejected him, and so he rejected them. They're not going to get the promises. So why would we get the promises? Why, how can we trust God? He abandoned one people. Will he abandon us? And Paul's going to stop them and say, it's not true that he abandoned anybody. 
He made promises, and he's keeping his promises to everyone to whom those promises have been made. How can Paul say that? Look at chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's talking about his Jewish brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's promises have not been broken, right? It's not as though the word of God has failed, for here's, here's the escape, right? This is how Paul is going to justify God. Uh, Piper, John Piper, did some graduate work in this passage, and the, the title of that uh, thesis has been published as The Justification of God, right? This is how Paul is going to justify God. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Remember, Isaac... Uh, and Ishmael are both offspring of Abraham. But Isaac is the child of promise, not Ishmael. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done not, nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul's point here is that God made these promises to Abraham and his offspring, and there are among his physical offspring some who are not spiritual offspring, and there are some who are not among his physical offspring who are among his spiritual offspring. Why does Paul care to impress upon us that we belong to Abraham? Look at Romans 4. <clears throat> Talking about Abraham again, 4, beginning in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? That's the gospel. Uh, the, the, the blessing made to Abraham was that blessing only for the circumcised, that is, for the ethnic Jew, or is it also for the uncircumcised, that is, the Gentile? Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the, the point of that, that line of argument right there essentially is this. Abraham's not a Jew. Abraham is not an Israelite. Right? It was... It was credited to him prior to circumcision. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Why? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. 
Let me translate that into very brief modern English. It makes Abraham the father of all who believe among the Gentiles and all who believe among the Jews. He's, he's the father of everyone who believes. So when we come back to Hebrews chapter 2, and the author of Hebrews says, surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He's not talking about merely ethnic Jews here. He's talking about everyone who is the offspring of Abraham. So in one sense, it's limiting. It's not all of humanity. We do not believe. Scripture does not teach universal salvation. There are two, two kinds of people in the world, those who are in Christ, trusting Christ, saved by the finished work of Christ, and those who are rejecting Christ in rebellion against the God who created all things. And the former are spoken of as the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Again, the image of a high priest making sense only to a people who have had the Mosaic covenant to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, propitiation is, is satisfaction. Uh, it's it's a, an offering. It is a, uh, a sacrifice that restores fellowship between God and man. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, let me pause again. Questions? The answer then is the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. It must be. It must be for somebody. Because why else would Paul and the author of Hebrews insist upon there being a group identified as the offspring of Abraham? And Paul makes explicitly clear in Romans 4 and Romans 9. The answer to the question who belongs to Abraham and therefore are recipients of the covenant promises it's both Jews and Gentiles, distinguished not by ethnicity, but by faith, those who are believing. Okay, questions? David. That's right. So it seems to me he's saying he's made, he made, made like his brother, so therefore he's saying a certain group, right? Uh, no, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of truth in what you just said, but I think it's like a funnel going the other direction, right? The, uh, that it's, it's not that he's made like us Christians. Uh, it's that he's, we Christians are human, Right? Those of us he intends to save are human, and therefore he must be made like us that he intends to save. And so I don't think it's saying that he's like us in any other respect than the fact that we are human. Um, but the fact that humanity is true of every living person uh, or every person who's gone before doesn't mean that they're all saved, right? And so I don't know that the trying to run something through a funnel backwards gets 
is a, a helpful illustration. But uh, he's like us because we're human. Um, that's what we need. We need a human being. Uh, now, it is interesting. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And now, what is he doing for us? He's making us like him, right? Uh, so Christ is made like us, not only in his humanity, but in as much as that humanity is subject to the fall. He doesn't have uh, sin. He, he doesn't have a sin nature. He did not get that, which is fine. He's still fully human. Sin is not inherent to humanity. In fact, because he doesn't have sin, he's more truly human than we are. And so he comes in that fallen flesh, uh, fallen in the sense that it's subject to the fall. He can get sick, he can be injured, he can die. He comes like us in that respect, but having been resurrected, he is not only no longer, he's not only sinless, but he's no longer subject to the weakness of the fall. He's now perfected. Uh, he has eternal life as the man Christ Jesus. And now what is he doing? Having been made like us, now he makes us like him. Uh, and we will eventually, one day when Christ returns and we are raised up from the grave, uh, we will be like him, not, not in the fact that we are human categorically. That's already true, and it's true of everybody. We will be made like him because in our humanity we will be sinless. We will be true humanity in a way that no human being ever has been or will be before Christ comes again except for Jesus Christ. Other questions? You can see the author of Hebrews already beginning to transition here, right? He's wrapped up the angels argument. Uh, he's made this explicit reference in 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps. Notice he's using angels differently here. Before, Christ is greater than the angels. They are messengers, and Christ brings a message. But Christ comes as God himself bringing the message. So he's not really a messenger per se, any more than the king becomes a messenger when he brings his own message, right? The king, we, we wouldn't call the king a messenger because he brought the message himself. Christ comes himself with the message, the truth. It is his message. He's greater than the angels who are mere messengers. Here, though, he's, he's coming back to this angel idea, but not in order to compare Christ to the angels. Uh, rather, he's comparing us to the angels, right? Christ is not an angel out to redeem angels. Christ is fully human in order to redeem humanity. It's interesting, this language of help here in the ESV. Is anybody using anything other than an ESV this morning? What do you have other than help? Oh, that's okay. Yeah, so Hebrews, uh, for those who aren't looking at it, Hebrews 2.16. Anybody have anything other than help? 2.16? Yes. Chris. Yeah, yeah. So the King James, something to the effect of took on. Anybody have anything else? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Which translation is that? NIV. NIV. So the NIV and the ESV read the same there. Anybody have anything else? Anybody have a New American Standard? 
I don't know what it reads. I'm just curious. The, the verb here that's translated helps, I mean, it gets at the idea, but it's, uh, it weakens the idea significantly. The verb means to take hold of. Uh, and when you go back into, let's take a look at Isaiah 41. What's the NAS say? Uh, 2.16, Hebrews 2.16. And for the rest of us, we're turning to Isaiah 41. Give help. Uh, Look at Isaiah 41, beginning in verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth. And called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you see all of the, the uh, overlap between the author of Hebrews, his language, the imagery he's using, and Isaiah 41? It's almost difficult I would say that uh, if, you, if you denied he had Isaiah 41, 8 through 10 in mind when he was writing, the, the, the burden is on you to prove it. There's so much overlap here in the language. But he uses help in the English here in verse 10. But notice he says, you whom I took. Uh, right? There's, there, the, the language is much stronger for the author of Hebrews than help. For surely it is not angels that he takes, but he takes the offspring of Abraham, takes up, takes to himself, takes out of the, the position of bondage and slavery, takes out of Egypt, takes out of sin and death. Notice, too, he uses the term offspring of Abraham in Hebrews, also used here. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners. Now, in the Old Testament context, that is, it is and is assumed to be a reference to the Jewish diaspora, right? The fact that the Jews themselves have been scattered all over the world. But that scattering of the people of God in the Old Testament and gathering of them back into one place together with God is itself an anticipation of God gathering people from all tribes and tongues and nations, scattered all over the earth, gathering all of them to himself. So you even get this language in Isaiah, which seems to be where the author of Hebrews' mind is as he's writing these verses, 16 and 17 here. Uh, the offspring of Abraham that he makes reference to uh, in, in what is likely its Old Testament context, there's this language that anticipates that gathering of the nations. And so, um, yeah, and then uh, I'm going to be honest. I remembered thinking to myself, oh, don't, don't forget to go to Jeremiah 31, 32. But I don't remember why. So we're going to turn to Jeremiah 31, 32, and we're going to see if we can discover why that's going to be helpful. Um, Oh, there it is. Yeah. Jeremiah 31, and I'll start in verse 31. This, of course, is 
uh, is the, the famous new covenant passage. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke. Uh, that language of taking them. This is, so remember we said the author of Hebrews has the Exodus in mind. Uh, that, that is the, the backdrop to everything he's saying here. Uh, and so his choice of, of language, right after he said, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, which immediately takes uh, the Jewish mind as well as any Gentiles who were what we call, uh, what, what the, Old or the New Testament calls God-fearers, right? Gentiles who either, uh, there were Gentiles who converted fully to Judaism and they were considered Jews. And then there were Gentiles who worshiped with the Jews but, but didn't go all the way to conversion, uh, i.e. they did not accept circumcision uh, and so uh, they didn't receive it. So they were called God-fearers. So you had Gentiles in the synagogues. Now, everyone who was familiar with that Old Testament context hears lifelong slavery and deliverance from slavery, and they're immediately thinking of the Exodus. And then he says, for surely it is not angels that he takes, but he takes the offspring of Abraham. And they would have equated that language of taking, uh, taking up, taking out with the Exodus as well. In Jeremiah 31, 32, uh, is using that, that uh, similar language, right? I took you out of Egypt. Okay, other questions, observations? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so. Okay. Yeah, so Romans is about 10 years earlier than Hebrews. Okay, anything else then before I close this in prayer? Right about now, they may want you to come get your kids, but the schedule says they have seven minutes left. So uh, you, you might just kind of see, peek. Did you have a question, Libby? You don't? Oh, you do, okay. Yes, Christ is the, the righteous right hand. Yeah, yep, good question. Um, <clears throat> yeah, fear not, I am with you, the first line in 10, right, Emmanuel. Uh, Emmanuel, like if you study Hebrew, you find out Emmanuel means God with us. I mean, like literally, it's those three words mashed together, God with us, right? Uh, and so fear not, I am with you. Uh, Christ is our Emmanuel, uh, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Christ is that righteous right hand that upholds us. So, Okay. Um, yeah, we could spend years in Isaiah. Like years and years. Yeah. Barrett. Mm -hmm. Right, but if I'm reading that passage here, like 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The Abrahamic covenant, those who deny that the Abrahamic covenant is continuing, point to the new covenant, the language in Jeremiah 31, uh, Ezekiel 36, to suggest that all previous covenants are null and void. There's a new covenant now. But you, when you read about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and what makes it new, it's new relative to the Mosaic covenant, which is dead. And the author of Hebrews, it, it's anticipated in the Old Testament that it will be dead. A new covenant's coming one day. And when it does, it will supersede the Old Covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant. The author of Hebrews is doing exactly the same thing. The author of Hebrews is going to tell you the Old Covenant's passing away. What Old Covenant? The Mosaic Covenant, right? It's a specific covenant that's no longer in effect, uh, and that covenant is the Mosaic Covenant, not the Abrahamic Covenant. Yeah, good point. Okay, anything else? Okay, uh, let me close this in prayer then. Father, thank you for this time together. We thank you that we are indeed uh, the offspring of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that, that Christ has done all that is necessary for our salvation, uh, that we uh, are his brothers and his sisters, uh, that he has saved us and continues to save us. We give thanks and praise for these things in Christ's name. Amen.